Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. I'm your host, Bo Martonic, and on this episode, I am joined by Brian Barney, host of the Eastman's Elevated podcast and avid backcountry bow hunter. Brian is one of the most committed and successful backcountry hunters that I've ever met, and his enthusiasm just oozes out of his voice. We talk all about high country mule deer hunting, diving into the commitment it takes to bow hunt the, the high country, chasing a potential world record mule deer buck, locating big mule deer, Bucks shifting to secondary living, executing a stock, and a lot more stories. And this episode is presented by Onyx, who's the Onyx Hunt app is your premier GPS hunting app that turns your phone into a working GPS. I'm using the Onyx Hunt app in the field religiously right now while scouting for mountain bucks in Pennsylvania. I'm marking places that I find and just typing in notes to help me f- for the upcoming fall. So I always take a photo of the spot to add to my waypoint so that I can visualize it at a later date. So if you want to check out the Onyx Hunt app for yourself, head over to onyxmaps.com. Use the coupon code EMW to save 20%. Tethered is a company that was founded on the principles of educating the hunting community on saddle hunting with also creating the most innovative, lightweight, safe products for saddle hunting. I'm using the Phantom Saddle System with the Predator platform for all of my mobile hunts, and I just received the new knee pads that I believe will be releasing soon, which are extremely lightweight and have a ton of padding for all-day sits. To learn more about tethered and saddle hunting, head over to tetherednation.com. It's also brought to you by Maven Optics. Maven is building the highest quality optics at half the price of their competitors through their direct-to-consumer business model. Their products are back with a lifetime no-fault warranty and an incredible customer experience. I'm using the B2 9x45s on all of my western hunts. It's a low-light monster. allows you to see through the binos longer than you can even with your naked eye. If you use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT, you get a free gift with any full-price optics order at mavenbuilt.com. And last but not least, Spartan Forge. Hunters require an accurate forecast of all the best hunting days and the best hunting spots to save time on scouting and actually executing the hunt. The Spartan Forge Outfitter utilizes years of military background and machine learning to pull from millions of data points to accurately predict deer movement, which includes GPS data, 30 years of weather, academic and state research. They're using science rather than someone's opinion to figure out movement for your specific hunting area. You can use the code East Meets West to save 25% off of the outfitter at SpartanForge.ai. On this week's Mountain Buck Story of the Week, or otherwise known as Mountain Buck Monday over on social media, this story comes from Louis Miraglia. Louis says, I shot this 10 point on December 12th of 2020 in an area in the foothills of the Catskills Mountains in New York on a large chunk of public. My wife and I left the trailhead an hour before first light, knowing we had a mile and a half walk to where we would slow down to begin to still hunt. We were waiting for a a day during the late rifle without a westerly wind due to how this spot sets up. 
Our goal was to get a saddle that we just first discovered two years ago during the spring. It was tore up with rubs then and how remote it was for the area. We knew it would be a spot we'd like to hit in the future. In the two years since we found this spot, I've learned so much about reading maps, topography, and realized that this was the type of saddle to look for when e-scouting. During an early bear uh, during early bear season this year, we went back and didn't see any bear, but we did see a few deer and some fresh buck sign. And anybody who knows about hunting low deer density area, when you see a few deer, even if it's just does and a spike, you remember that area. From the time we started the still hunt, we were seeing fresh deer sign. You could tell the deer were walking all through this area, and there was fresh acorns on top of the leaves. Tons of deer poop, the most sign that I had seen since mid-November. So we decided to move even slower towards our goal. Our goal being a spot where we could see the opposing ridge and get a shot across the creek. We never fully scouted that side since it's a laurel hell. We just walked the edge and on my Onyx hunt app, I marked all old scrapes and a funnel where we assumed the deer would exit the thicket from. After sitting in the spot for 30 minutes, when we were overlooking a bench below us, we decided to keep moving. At 8.30 a.m., as we were creeping up to where we could see the opposing ridge, my wife grabs my shoulder and says, Stop! Legal buck! We had no cover, so we had to freeze, and I didn't want to pull my binos up since I couldn't. I could see it had three points on one side, and we were in an antler restriction area. So from the distance of 135 yards with my naked eye, I thought it was a two-and-a-half-year-old eight-point. After a long season of close calls, I was stoked for any legal buck. I could just see him through the brush in my three times zoom until he took a step. Then we lost him. We knew no way that he smelled us. Maybe he saw or heard us, but we didn't see him run. We assumed we still had to be there and we froze for a long five minutes until my wife says he's stepping out. All I could see were his vitals and I fired. He ran towards us and froze at about 70 yards where he was about to go down but without risking it. I fired another shot into the vitals and he went right down. When I took that second shot, we realized how big he actually was, and my wife and I lost it. All the scouting and time in the field paid off. It was a great feeling. Next step was to call my brother and say, get the sled. So the story from Louie, it, you have to see the pictures of it, by the way. It's an absolute giant deer for New York, for anywhere. And it says, get the sled. He literally takes it out on a sled because of the area that he was in. Easiest way to get the deer out uh, for them. And, and just awesome buck. I'd highly recommend heading over to the East Meets West Hunt Instagram or East Meets West Outdoors on Facebook and checking out that photo. It's pretty awesome. So send in your Mountain Buck Monday stories. I'd love to be able to share them. Um, and uh, yeah, keep keep sending them in. I love reading them. I love sharing them. So this past weekend, I went to Elk Shape Camp down in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, Dan Staten put on the camp there. He had uh, some incredible instructors there with him. He had Bob Terwillinger, who has like 30 years of elk hunting ex- or guiding experience, excuse me, in Colorado. He had Joel Turner, who helped us so much with the shot process and elk calling Jeff Bynum helping to go through all the finances and life coaching and just had a whole team of people there to be able to 
help out and help us learn. And there was 30 of us guys that were in that class. And I learned from everybody. Everybody was sharing information. Everybody was telling stories, talking about their mistakes. Everybody was failing equally in different places. Dan was trying to find our weaknesses. And it was just it was an awesome weekend. I, it blew away my expectations. Uh, I, and I definitely found some of my weaknesses and can't wait, uh, to keep working on them. I mean, it, I mean, Dan kicked all of our asses at the CrossFit gym for sure. Uh, I'm hurting today and he, and just, and Joel just broke down our shooting and figured out exactly, you know, where we were going wrong and, for most most everybody is a good shot, but it coming down to the concentration and the focus and making sure we can get it done under pressure is where it comes down to. So awesome experience in camp. Highly recommend it if you ever get a chance to, to check one out. And last thing I want to say before jumping into this podcast with Brian is tag application. So if you're listening to this when it comes out, April 1st, 2021, Montana, you have to have your applications in for um, if you're looking for deer and elk, and I'm not sure if there's anything else that time frame. And then also Colorado is April 6th, elk and deer. And um, I'm I'm going to be, well, I'm actually not applying for Montana uh, anymore. And I'm, I, I think I'd mentioned this in, in um, but I'm applying for Colorado here, and you'll hear me talking about it a bunch in this this episode with Brian. But I'll be applying for mule deer and hopefully an elk tag as well in Colorado. So that's coming up April 1st for Montana, April 6th for Colorado. Don't forget, check out the state websites for more information there. All right, I'll just jump into this episode here with Brian Barney, and I can promise you, you're going to really enjoy this one. If you're not motivated after you're done listening to it, then just hang it up. <laughs> All right, everyone. Have a great week. All right, we're live. Brian Barney, welcome to the show. It's it's uh, good to be talking to you. Oh, dude, so happy to connect with you. Yeah, I've been watching your podcast grow and your following. And uh, man, you've just been getting after it. And um, guys have been taking notice. So I- I'm happy to connect with you. Yeah, we have a mutual friend and um, asked me to be on the podcast. So yeah, no, this is great. Yeah, I, I'm, I've been looking forward to having you on for a while. I Like I said, you and I both have Clint Casper's a, a mutual friend and he's hunting with you and, and me. And and then just recently I was talking with Mark Livesey and he's like, have you had Brian Barney on yet? And I said, I, well, I, said I'm, I have him on my list to reach out to. He's like, do it sooner than later. You need to need to get him on. He's an absolute great guy and, and everything. And I've been listening to your show for, I don't know, however many years it's been quite a while and always seems to be the one that if I need any sort of motivation or any sort of just, it's always positive energy with the Eastman's Elevated podcast. And I, I thoroughly enjoy your show. So, and not to mention, you just flat out seem to get it done. So I'm really excited for this one. Oh, dude, that's so nice. Yeah, it's so kind. Uh, thanks, I appreciate it. I I hope I can live up to the hype. But, uh, <laughs> you just you stick two guys that are super passionate about bow hunting on a podcast, and it usually comes out pretty good. 
Yeah, and it's funny because you and I were both just laughing right before we started recording. We started getting into conversation already. I'm like, you know, damn it, I should have hit record. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what happens. And it's it's nice. It's always nice talking to someone else that has a podcast because, one, they know they know how it goes. And it actually makes my job extremely easy um, from that standpoint. And, and two, we always mess up the uh, not recording the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it comes. Constantly. It never fails. Like you always have these awesome conversations before you hit record. And and again, you're just trying to connect with your guest and connect with the host and uh, kind of build a rapport and, and uh, throw around ideas for the podcast. But it is your fault. You did ask me about High Country Mule Deer. And anytime you ask me about those, <laughs> I get fired up. So I, I just started talking High Country Mule Deer. And before we knew it, 10 minutes had gone by. So yeah, I, know. I, I blame you. Yeah, it was, it was 110% me it was same conversation we could have had right here but we'll we'll get into that uh so brian i'd like as we get started here if anyone is not familiar with who you are and and kind of what you have going on do you want to give a brief background on yourself and your podcast and whatever else you might find relevant yeah absolutely so uh, yeah, my name's Brian Barney. I live in Ennis, Montana, so it's a small town south of Bozeman. Uh, I moved here about 20 years ago, so that's going to age me, but about I moved here at 19. I think I've been here 21 years or something like that. But yeah, I moved here at 19 just chasing outdoor opportunities. And, and what, like, during high school, I really focused on wrestling and fell in love with it. And it taught me these life lessons about the harder you work, the more you achieve and the more you put into something, the more you get out of it. And I trained really hard and, and really put my all into it and fell in love with, with, with the hard work and, um, the effort and then accomplishing my goals. And so after high school, like I had hunted with my family for Roosevelt's and blacktails in Washington, but the season is so short. And I was the first family member, uh, uh, you know, in my hunting group that was, went to bow hunting and I got a bow at 13 and I, I did, I killed a blacktail and I killed an elk, um, with my bow and, 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 when I finished high school, I was just looking for something more, some, some place to put my effort. And, um, I found this little spot in Montana and I moved out here and got a construction job, but I just immersed myself in the outdoors. Like I fell in love with it. Um, and out here, there's so much opportunity. You can dang near hunt year round. I mean, we have spring bear and then, you know, our fall seasons, they give us six weeks of a bow season season. And at that point they gave us five weeks of a rifle season, which anymore I'm bow exclusive, but I learned a lot in those years of hunting with a rifle, uh, during that rifle season. And, and then we had antelope season. And so it just gave me all this opportunity to sharpen my skills. And so I started to find consistent success with my bow and arrow in Montana. And I started to look towards these other States and their, uh, opportunities. And at the time I was doing it, when I first started, there was nobody applying for tags or hunting multiple states or coming out west. I mean, I'm sure there was some guys that did it, but it 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 wasn't popular. Like we didn't have the internet. Like there is no information. Like you you had to read a book, and there was no books on applying for these different states. But uh, I just had this dream, and I had this dream of uh, of hunting different species and different states and capitalizing on opportunities. So I started to travel around the West and started to find success. And through that success, then I just started to write for different magazines and get published, and and finally ended up with a pro staff writing job from Eastman's. 
And um, they kept me busy writing in in every article. And so I just pour my heart and soul into it. Uh, and, and I really come from like blue collar roots. Like I'm still a blue collar guy. And so the advice I give, um, guys would eat it up because it was advice that would help them in their own pursuit uh, of Western success. And so I just started to share that success. And then about five years ago, uh, started the podcast, um, also do some filming and capture some Western hunts. Uh, either solo filming or hire a cameraman and go in with me. And um, yeah, I just kind of built this this dream of backcountry bow hunting brick by brick by putting in hard work. And, you know, a lot of times I was writing for free. I was filming for free. But eventually all that hard work pays off. And I, I, I built was able to build a, a good name and now build a, a decent following for the the podcasts and, and filming and writing and things. So, man, I... I am just absolutely living the dream. I couldn't have structured my life any better at a, as a 20-year-old kid, but really it's just falling in love with Western bow hunting and immersing myself in that. And whether it was shed hunting or uh, 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 bear hunting or deer, elk or whatever it was, I was just all in and, and put all my effort in. And, and, and so that's really how I, how I built my name and the podcast and the whole deal. Oh, that's, that's awesome to hear that. And then the, what's, What's cool to me is like how you started with writing as far as, you know, getting into it. It was a similar story with myself and I, I love writing. I still love writing and being able to just put it all down on, on paper there. And for you, and you said you were in the, the construction, construction industry since you moved there and now you own your own construction business, correct? And, um, so that, I mean, that's, that's, that's cool on its own because you kind of built your own, uh, life around that. And does that allow you to be able to break away during those hunting seasons and, and get, get more time out there than you might've in the past? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I used to be a weekend warrior for sure. Like, um, you know, you think you start a business and you're going to get all this free time, but the truth of the matter is, is when you start a business, you're more responsible than working for a guy. All of a sudden you got to answer all the phone calls and it's your name on the line with every job you run. And so, yeah, I mean, the first 10 years of that business, uh, I could only get out on weekends or maybe at a Friday or a Monday, or maybe take one week off in the season. But you know, it, it's gotten to the point where now it allows me to really structure my life to get time doing the things I love to do. So I am so fortunate, like, um, you know, through the, the outdoor, I've, I've created a whole second job through the outdoor industry. So that helps in its own right as that kind of pays me to be out there or, you know, pays for, uh, uh a lot of my, my passion, you know, everything, um, you know, everything, it, it's nice to have a second income that surely helps out. But yeah, that business, like getting this business to a point of having the right people in the right places and, and then just setting myself up so I can be gone, you know, uh, being honest with these clients and building such a good reputation that I can stand behind. Now, I mean, I think last season, I mean, I, I worked and took care of responsibilities, but I mean, I was pretty much all in for like three months, you know, it's yeah. just going for it. And, um, that nothing makes me happier in life 
than doing what I love to do. Like, I feel like that's what I'm meant to do. And when I have that time that I've structured for myself where I can really cut loose, like, that's why you're seeing these trophy animals come across my feet is it's, you know, I have the time to pursue them. You know, I have time on my side, you know, I can push hard day in, day out. And so, you know, I still have work and responsibilities and still have to get podcasts out and things. But yeah, I mean, I've structured my life to get so much free time. Um, I, I think, you know, you take the, the U.S.'s population, I'm probably the happiest 1% for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's what's funny about that, there's well, a couple things. And and the, the one is I, I joked about this because I feel like a lot of the people that I've met in the outdoor industry that that get time out into the out in the woods and the mountains, whatever they they're in the construction industry of some sort. And I said, I wish, I wish someone would have told me that when I was in high school that, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm not uh, diminishing that at all. I know you, you know, you worked your ass off to be to that point and built that life that you wanted to live. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's funny. I think I would have probably taken a little bit of a different route than I normally would if I would have known what I do now as far as what what I what I like to do and and I am very fortunate that I get four weeks of paid vacation from work and I I use the majority of that for hunting I do have some other obligations now but uh, it's 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 pretty cool to to be able to see that and to see that you've built that platform and also and with your you know in the hunting industry with your podcast and writing and everything else, you're able to give back and help others in the, in the same respect there. So, and, and one thing I will say that, that you had mentioned there, you said, Oh, the reason why you have these, these trophy animals come across your feet is because of time. But I want to say something, anybody that's hunted Western hunting in the mountains, time doesn't always mean that you're going to come out successful. Cause sometimes I remember the first time I did a 14 day hunt, I was so tired and beat up mentally, physically. I didn't want to go another day. I mean, by the time I was home, I wanted to be back there, but it was, it was difficult. So just because you got the time doesn't, uh, there's, there's a lot more on, on that goes into it. I know you're being humble, but I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> yeah, that that is a true story. Yeah, it's a combination uh, uh, of a whole bunch of different facets that, you know, and I think about it a lot of, of what makes me successful. And, and it is a combination uh, of time and fitness and then, um, you know, being able to, to, to close on opportunities. Like you get an opportunity on animal, being able to put yourself in bow range. So stalking skill, shooting skill. And I think that's why I love it. And I say it all the time, like backcountry bow hunting is the ultimate challenge. And if you're getting into it to be successful or to make a name or kill a bunch of big critters, like, man, you might have another thing coming. Like that's the goal for all of us. It, it just takes years of dedication and hard work. And really like all those years that, that I, that I didn't have a name in the outdoor industry that I maybe was writing or something of that nature, but you know, nobody saw all the work I put in, you know, nobody saw all the, the miles in the mountains day in, day out. Nobody saw, uh, you know, the sacrifices that I made and, and also just time of field, like, uh, experience is the absolute best teacher. So being out there, I mean, I've failed on the biggest box and the biggest bowls I've airballed them. I've missed them. I've made every mistake from Sunday, but you pick yourself up, 
you learn from it, you get better and you focus and, and, and you're intentional about your training and about your focus. And eventually things just start to come together, but you are spot on, man. It, it is not easy to be successful out West. Uh, so time, it's just one of those, one of those factors, but, um, yeah, along what you said that the trades is a, is a great way to make a living because it's a, you know, it, you can be an entrepreneur. You can work for somebody for years and, and put in your work, and then you have a chance to build your own business. And especially in a place like Montana, you know, whether it's an electrician or plumber or carpenter, you know, you can kind of uh, uh, make your own business and structure your own schedule. And when you're small enough, you can actually schedule some of hunting season off or your jobs to align, you know, to where you do have some time off. But as you get bigger and you have employees, you have other families that are counting on income where you got to keep things rolling and keep things progressing. And I, I'm just fortunate where I found the right guys and put in the right places. And when I first started, you know, I couldn't leave them by themselves to run a job site. But now that they've been with me 15 years and I take really good care of them and pay them well, I mean, they pretty much know that you can't get a hold of me during September, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I've just structured it that way. But um, yeah, it 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 sure is fun to, to be able to have passion in your life and have something that you love so much and that challenges you to your core, both physically and mentally like you talk about being exhausted on a 14 day hunt like like really 5 6 days you you're you're most efficient in that time window but sometimes we're traveling so many hours like you coming from east to west like you know you're you're traveling so many hours that you have to make it in one trip and two, it's also tough to scout. Like scouting is so key just to get your boots on the ground and a feel for country and and learn. And and it's also tough to go to brand new units and learn them from scratch. Like a lot of these places, like the place I killed my best bull to date this year. I mean, I've been bow hunting that place for eight years. I've been building eight years worth of knowledge. Now I killed them in a new drainage I had never been because I continue to expand and explore and I continue to further my knowledge of this area. But yeah, I've been hunting this place for eight years. So I have a really good knowledge of what the elk do in there. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's one of the things that really helps. So yeah, trying to do it all in one 14 day hunt, man, uh, that is tough. And like I say all the time, it's the toughest challenge around is to be successful on a backcountry bow hunting adventure, you know, self-guided out there. It is so difficult and you have to make a thousand decisions right on a stock and then execute your shot, uh, travel in country, you have to be in such shape. It, it just requires so much out of you that you just, it, it requires that you have to train all the time and prepare for it and think about it all the time. And so, uh, that that's why we're lucky because that's what I do. And I, I think that's what you do too, is constantly think about it, you know, yeah. prepare for it and try to ready yourself. And it, I mean, it's not a hundred percent success rates. In fact, in my state success rates on a bull elk run at about 4%, 4% of hunters are successful out there. So, I mean, you break down that, those statistics or those odds, that means, you know, the way the odds are, if you take yourself with all the average hunters out there, you're going to be successful one out of every 20 years bow hunting. Well, that just doesn't cut it for me. So yeah. it's like, you got to put in the work. So, you know, long time ago, I found that, you know, there's that saying that 10% of the hunters killed 90% of the animals. And I believe it, you know? And so I work really hard to be in that, in that top 10%. Yeah, I, I I can totally agree agree with what you said. I mean, the first trip I went out west, like four or five days in, I was already mentally drained and not. And I realized I was like, okay, one, I wasn't in the shape I needed to be in to 
to do that. So like, you know, every time, I think one of the hardest things that I've learned and with, with any type of hunting is when you have like some sort of a failure, you miss or you have a mistake is figuring out how to keep your head straight and, and move on. And then, you know, note it, you know, I'll even, when I'm on hunts, I'll even write notes on my phone as far as like things I need to improve on. Like I'm already thinking of the ne- the next time as far as like, you know, all right, I was struggling, you know, getting up the the mountain there or after four or five days, I was wore out. What can I do differently? And, you know, eventually evolve. And now, you know, that's all into my workout plan. You know, every morning I'm getting up before work and, and going and, and getting workouts in. And then a couple of years in next thing, you know, I felt great. I felt confident. I felt everything when, when I started doing that. And then, you know, there's just, there's always, it's a constant, I feel like the years just run together as far as it's just a constant working effort to try to get better and, and, and do that. I mean, I, for me, um, unlike you, I mean, you've, you've had that experience you've been doing, I'm new to it. So it's, it's all, I'm just, I'm trying to get better and trying to become someone that's, that is consistently successful. And and it's definitely not for, it's not something that happens overnight. That's, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure, man. Yeah. It's a constant evolution of your skill set and constant evaluation. Like you, you got to be honest with yourself. You got to look for your weakest link and how you can improve it. Like you were talking your fitness, like, and and it's tough to, to visualize what it's going to be like. Like you don't know until you get there and, and you're you're practicing one of the smartest things of, of taking notes of how you feel on the hunt, things that you can improve. Like you're being really honest with yourself and and that's how you, you you improve yourself and it's not it's not about beating yourself up the whole time i mean you make a bad shot like um you know tom brady's the g- greatest quarterback to ever live but not every pet he doesn't win every game he loses some games and you know like but he prides himself on being clutch in those moments and so when you make a mistake or you make a miss it's good to be honest with yourself to self-evaluate but like you said you don't want to get inside your own head and just beat yourself up and just over it and over it and over it. You can't have that shot back. Once you have that moment, that arrow is gone and all you can do from there is move forward and move forward, whether that's tracking the animal or whether that's picking up your arrow that has no blood on it, sticking it back in your quiver and starting over. But it's it's daunting. It's overwhelming. Like you, you push so hard for seven, eight, nine days, finally find a buck, finally get in range. You get your chance. You get your shot under this intense amount of adrenaline and you air ball you duff it you're not clutch you know and that is a tough pill to swallow you feel like when that happens you go grab your arrow and you're so mad at yourself but you go grab your arrow and and you feel like well that was my chance for the hunt i'm never going to get another opportunity that was it i worked for seven days to get that and and i blew it i duffed it and that's a really tough pill to swallow but yeah the quicker you realize that um, you know, that shot is gone and all I can do is focus on the next one and focus on redemption. And I made that opportunity happen. Like I'm going to keep pushing and I'm going to find another opportunity and also getting really good at seizing those moments, being clutch, being Tom Brady in the moment, you know, having a, a giant record books buck standing there and knowing that you have the skill set to keep calm and place that arrow right where you want it to be by
by focusing on your execution and, and what you need to do to make that shot. But man, I, I pride myself on that. I, I love those moments of, of an intense pressure and adrenaline and then trying to be clutch in those moments. I mean, that that pretty much sums up bow hunting or at least sums up a lot of bow hunting. You know, it's like being clutch and you just like, God, man, you just have so much into that moment, like so much invested, like not only that hunt, but you're talking about waking up before work and working out and you're talking, you have a year's worth of work of shooting and thinking about it and wanting it and, and having it drive you. And then like you, you're driving halfway across the country. You're so far from home and you're putting yourself in dangerous situations with lightning and weather and, 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 and big wilderness and, you just have so much invested that it means so much to you that that when you fail, man, it is heartbreaking. So, uh, but failure is a prerequisite of bow hunting, and you have to get good at accepting it and moving on, looking towards the next shot. I love it. So, I want I want to <clears throat> turn this conversation a little bit, which kind of just continues on with talking about your, your love for backcountry bow hunting. But I want to know. Uh, why that you love high country mule deer specifically. And, and the reason, well, one of the reasons that I'm talking to you about this is first of all, I've realized throughout the three years I've had this podcast, almost all of my lower 48 Western hunting podcasts have been specifically focused around elk. And that's selfishly because that's what I had been hunting at the time. And, and I've been getting some requests as far as mule deer. And this year I'm planning on doing a high country mule deer hunt of my own. And I want to hear your why behind high country mule deer. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I love hunting elk. Elk are so thrilling to hunt. And I can see why you fell in love with hunting them. Like, man, it's super exciting. But there there's something about mule deer. Like 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 mule deer, the places they live and the places they take you, they can live in more extreme environments than those elk. Uh, the, the, the mule deer that live in the high country, they migrate to the high country and then they'll migrate down to their winter range as snow and weather comes in. But uh, we as bow hunters get this chance to hunt them in this alpine environment. And this alpine environment, like, man, it's like where goats and sheep live. It's it's these lush green alpine basins that green up from, you know, glaciers melting down into these basins. And then it's, it's super rugged and steep country that'll challenge you to your core and, and sometimes scare the shit out of you. You know, like it's <laughs> steep, rugged country, these avalanche shoots and uh, uh gnarly rocky cliffs and and these mule deer like the species themselves like they're so tough to harvest like i have such a respect for a mature mule deer and and for one their antler size to their body size is huge they're the 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 biggest deer species as far as you know white tail or mule deer black tail or whatever so you know mule deer can grow racks that are 35 inches wide 37 inches wide in these huge deep forks and then you know can score upwards of 200 inches or better and 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 they have such a keen instinct like mule deer sometimes get a bad rap for bounding off and then looking back at a hundred yards or 150 yards and rifle guys get them but you know that's back in the 70s and the 80s when they could drive roads and there was big mule deer around everywhere in today's day and age like these big mule deer that grow six seven eight years old they're as smart as any species out there their instincts are so keen like they evolved from thousands of years of avoiding mountain lions 
and, and a mountain lion like has to sneak up and jump on a deer's back and kill it with its tooth and claws. So they're way, way sneakier than I could ever hope to be, you know? And so like mule deer, um, like when you're hunting elk, like elk is a, is a, a moving stock and it's almost like you see elk, you got to go get into them. And then you adjust to the scenario, which you see there mule deer are this, uh, this slow play, this, this patience, this methodical thought out game plan, this, this thinking, you know, watching this mule deer through the glass and, and really waiting for him to put himself in a bad position. And then when you're closing in, like the stocks are so slow, like, um, you know, you're moving like the hands of a clock. It may take you an hour to move 10 yards. Like, like you have to, um, you know, be quiet you have to have your wind right and then they pick up on movement really well and so for me i just fell in love with these mule deer for where they live and the species themselves and you know a long time ago like i thought i was going to be a sheep hunter when i really got into backcountry bow hunting but you know like i told you i quickly realized that that sheep hunting was out of my tax bracket like i can't write a forty thousand dollar check to go hunt dolls for a one-week hunt it's just not feasible you know i'm a blue collar carpenter and so like uh, i apply for sheep tags all over and i really want to hunt them i really want to hunt a desert or a big horn and i apply in every western state every draws but the draws are so steep and really the the fun of hunting sheep is the country they live in and then what i found is that I love mule deer far better than any sheep hunt I could ever go on because they live in the same extreme gnarly terrain. And the deal with high country mule deer is, is, uh, the populations are still good. And so you can get a high country tag every year or maybe two tags every year. But the goal is to kill one of these giant mature mule deer. You know, everybody wants to kill a big 200 incher, but there's not very many guys that have them. And, and there's even fewer guys that have them with a bow and arrow. And, and these, these 200 inch mule deer, these giant, big, mature mule deer, they live in every Western state in multiple different units units. There's opportunities to chase these bucks. And, um, man, I just, I fell in love with the species, the super extreme country that they get in. Like all of a sudden it's not, you don't just have to be a camper or a, a backpack hunter. Like, like you gotta be a mountaineer. Like you gotta, you gotta be able to survive where humans are not meant to survive. Like on the top of these peaks and that that elevation man it puts such an exertion on you like it's so tough to describe what hunting at 13,000 feet is but hunting at 13,000 feet your your blood doesn't have as much oxygen in it which doesn't get as much oxygen to your legs to your muscles so everything just fatigues quicker everything's tougher every climb's tougher and then not to mention like getting acclimated to that altitude i'm dizzy i've i've got you know i may have headaches i've got uh, appetite suppressant i'm waking up 10 times in the night you know so i'm a little bit sleep deprived so it just absolutely challenges me to my core and so i fell in love with it and that's the reason i'll do it till the day I die, man. I absolutely love chasing them. <laughs> what well, you said that was a, when you, when I asked you that question, you said that was a good question as if you weren't exactly sure how to answer that, but I don't know if anybody could explain that any better. And if anybody that's listening never thought about it, I'm pretty sure they're going to want to do it after that. But it, yeah. And those reasons are why I'm just so intrigued and in wanting to wanting to chase these deer and and i i think i think i love the aspect i've come to love glassing and seeing the animals just work through the country and seeing what they're doing and just observing from afar and then like you said to try to get within 
you know, bow range of these animals is just, it's incredible to think of even, and think about in your mind, the fact that, like you said, they're hiding from mountain lions and everything else. That's just, it's, it's insane to, to think about. And so like when you're, when, so if you could think back, um, I'm sure you have, you know, a ton of stories when it comes to high country mule deer hunting, but is there any that are, that are in your head that like, okay, if I were to talk to a brand new mule deer hunter, what is a story that comes to your mind that, that you could tell from the standpoint of the hunt in general, the deer, whatever it might be. Do you have any that come to your, to your mind? And there's so many great ones and it's tough to say one's better than the next, but yeah, I definitely like have some great stories of like triumph and heartbreak. Like I can, I can remember the first time I hunted Colorado and in Colorado special Colorado, they have a uh, great management in place, which uh, they're kind of shifting seasons around and more harvest things are changing all the time, but uh, they have such great um, genetics and then um, great management. And there's so much great high country mule deer hunting in there. And I, I fell in love with Colorado as well, because, um, you know, like I mentioned before, there's 13 and 14,000 foot peaks there. So a lot of the high country mule deer I hunt will be around nine to 11,000 feet. And in Colorado was just a little bit more extreme and these great big wildernesses that sit there and these great big peaks. So, yeah, I fell in love with the idea of hunting Colorado. So back years ago, man, it's tough to find information on units. It's tough to find anything out. But uh, I started applying, had a couple points in Colorado, finally decided on this high country unit and um, went there. And, and, and much like you coming from east to west, like my trip down to Colorado is a 16 hour drive. And so being a working class guy at the time, I couldn't afford to go on a scouting trip. So, you know, I had to just do map research and, and, um, you know, uh, 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 scout that way, kind of come up with some game plans. And so, you know, I drove down to Colorado. It was a solo hunt. I uh, went down a couple days early to kind of scout around, try to get a feel for the unit and started scouting around. But I had my eye on the biggest wilderness in this unit and it was this giant wilderness. And so I had these grand visions of making it to the middle of that wilderness and finding the buck of my dreams. And so, you know, I scouted for a couple days and I saw some bucks and things, but I thought, God, I got to get into this wilderness. So I loaded up my backpack and I've got 10 days worth of food and gear and uh, I've got my bow and arrow and there's nobody in the parking lot and I'm gone off this trail and I start putting in the miles and the elevation and it's it's just crazy extreme country like I say you're mountaineering up there and you're seeing goats and so I I backpacked around this wilderness I made it to the center and camped there and I hunted to the highest peak to the left and then moved my camp and uh, went 10 miles down the range this way and um Gosh, I, I put three days into this big wilderness and I was yet to see a deer. I hadn't seen a <laughs> mule deer doe. I hadn't seen a buck. I hadn't seen anything. It just wasn't the right habitat. And so, you know, I finally like, you know, everybody says like this never quit attitude, but you got to be smart and intelligent. There is a time to throw in the towel. And my time in this wilderness was now. It was like three days of not seeing a deer. Like, man, I got to get out of this place. So I, I rolled out of there. I wasn't giving up on the hunt, but I had to change location. So it's a fairly big unit I was in. And so then I started to use that scouting knowledge I had gained from the first two days. I had seen some bucks. I just didn't see any giant bucks. But what that told me was is where deer were living in the habitat that they preferred. And like all of this is like 
any one of these hunts, these things are always more difficult than you think they're going to be. You made the best, you make the best laid plans. And even me as a consistently successful backcountry bow hunter that it's killed, you know, tens of 20 of high country mule deer. I still, I get on these hunts and they, they, it's like a punch in the face. It's like being a fighter that gets hit in the face. Like every time it's tougher than I think it's going to be. And this is just one of those cases. And so, uh, pretty much went back to where I'd seen some deer loaded up my backpack again. By the time I got in and out and I'd done all this two days of scouting, three days of hunting, I'm five days into the hunt. I, I maybe have six or seven days left. I think it was like you, like an all in 12 or 14 days. I can't remember exactly, but um, so I, I backpacked into a new area and it, it's tough at this point. Like you were exhausted. Like I, I probably put on 40 miles, 50 miles. I've probably done 10,000 feet of vert gain and lost. Like, uh, you know, I'm tired, but I got to come out with my backpack and I got to get myself loaded back up and I got to get back in the woods. And so, uh, went back into this spot, um, one of my favorite spots on planet earth and backpacked in there. And man, I put myself in the box. Like all of a sudden, you know, I'm in the honey hole. Like I'm starting to see bucks and I'm seeing giant bucks. And I spot this, this buck. He's the buck of my dreams. Like thing is probably 32, 34 wide. At the time, the world record was 207 for a typical. I think this buck would have busted it. Um, I think he would have broke the world record. Like he was um, one of the the biggest bucks I'd ever seen to that point. Just a giant. And um, so I bet him down, and I bet him he's in this um, oh like this Alpen basin, and it's got all these cliffs surrounding it, but it's got a couple of shoots. And the shoot that I'm right above, I'm looking down. It's like, man, can I make my way down this shoot down to his basin to make a play on him? And he's bedded in like a little group of um, like like jack firs, like little stunted fir trees or whatever in this avalanche shoot. And um, so it, looking down this avalanche chute and all of a sudden this doe and this fawn squirt up from this avalanche chute. And I thought, well, if two deer can come up this avalanche chute, I can surely make my way down. And, um, so I, I start making my way down the chute. There's no way in hell those deer came up that chute. I'll tell you that right now. Like all of a sudden I got way past my skill level to where, you know, it, it gets scary where I strap my, my pack to my bow. And all of a sudden I'm to a place where it feels like I can't go up and I can't go down. And, you know, there's this whole glacier in the bottom. That's got this hollow spot that I'm thinking I'm going to slip into. And, um, and, and I'm good on heights, like on the construction site, I'm the guy that does all the high stuff cliffs heights don't bother me but this did like i started to sweat started to almost get that panicky feeling a couple times but kept three points of contact to the wall and at this point you're pretty much free climbing this wall but i did make it to the bottom and then i just executed the perfect stock middle of the day there's this that giant buck that goes well over 200 there's another one with giant backs that's you know dang near looks as big and man i crawl right into like 45 yards of these things in these jack furs and then i just wait and I, I wait about an hour goes by and I've got the tree. Uh, I've got a range on the tree down below me and the tree down below me is like 40 yards. So I know that tree's 40 yards. Pretty soon this buck gets up. And I mean, just Megalodon, just the, the biggest, most giant mule deer I could ever dream out. And, and I'm by myself in this Alpen basin and here he comes and he's walking out and he's got no idea I'm there and the wind's right in my face. And I knew I knew that tree was at 40 yards. So he walked behind that tree. And um, when he walked behind that tree, I drew my bow and he came out the other side of my tree and I settled my pin and I executed my best shot. And I watched my arrow sail right underneath his belly, you know, like uh, right underneath his brisket. 
Like that tree was 40 yards and that buck was probably like more like 45. He, you know, because he was on the backside of the tree and where he walked out, it was such a dumb move. But I was so young in my bow hunting career. I was so excited. You know, I felt like I didn't have to move to make, but dude, in, in all reality, like I could have ate a sandwich and range finded that deer 10 times and then shot him, right? Put a perfect shot in him, And I would have been standing over the world record. So like, that's the kind of thing that I have to swallow now is I airball this buck. They all scatter up in the trees and they're gone. And I'm just left, just heartbroken. And it, you know, it, at that point, man, I beat myself up pretty bad about it, but you know, my tent, my camps up on top. And so uh, this time I do not climb up the chute. I came down. Like I take the long way around, like all the way along this mountainside and make it up to my tent. And, you know, I had a decision to either give up heartbroken. I'm seven days into the hunt or however far I'm into it. Like I can go home and I can tell this story about how I missed the buck and how it just wasn't right. And, um, it didn't work out on this hunt, but you know, instead I just kept with it. I just kept grinding and, and there wasn't as many bucks around as the more you kind of hunt them and pressure them, the less you see. And so, uh, man, I just kept going for it. Uh, eventually I ran out of food. Um, so I went one day without food up and through there, ate my last meal of granola, uh, left my tent and I just figured I, I'm just all in. I'm down to like my last day or two of the hunt. And uh, I just figure I'm going to go out this far ridgeline I'd never been out. And it's all these giant 12 and 13,000 foot peaks. And I just start making my way out there and and um, get out there and getting above this Alpen basin that looks really bucky. And then pretty soon I just spot this buck down there and he's got a bunch of extras and he's bedded and he's bedded down below me. And uh, make a game plan and I had to circle around and kind of balance on all these like dinner plate size rocks or whatever and anytime you step and you get the balance uneven it'll it'll creak that rock but I am um, able to keep quiet keep my balance through that place and then come right above that muley and stock right down and then I get this shot and I I actually took a picture of the archery shot after I took it and I'll, I'll shoot you the picture it's like one of my 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 favorite photos I've ever taken, but you know, pretty soon I peer over the cliff and I see that buck with that extras and he's laying down there and I can see his vitals. It's like now or never. And so able to draw back and then, you know, it was a 50 degree slope down that hillside. At that point, uh, range finders didn't make the cut for you. I had a cut chart on the side of my range finder that told me the <laughs> angle and told me the range to shoot. So I hit him with the range finder and then I have an inclometer that I look at. It's a 50 degree angle. I make the cut on him, figure out where I'm going to shoot, where I'm going to hold, set my pin, pop over the car over the edge you know settle in and and lace that buck put one of my best shots on him and um you know the the arrow goes through and passes through him and i can see blood instantly and man that thing took 10 or 15 hops and he was dead on his feet and rolled down and now he's he's just like in the prettiest place on planet earth and i just had like 12 days of the biggest adventure I'd ever had in my life by myself up and through there. And here I kill this buck with these extras. Now he wasn't the 200 inch buck. He was like a really good 175, but he was super heavy and palmated. And at the time, man, I, I was just so tickled like to have that success after such a big failure to come back from it and then execute perfectly, man, it was the absolute ultimate, you know? So yeah, it's adventures like that, that, that keep me coming back when I, when I get to feel that payoff and that success and all my hard work, you know, comes to fruition. And then I'm, I'm standing over a giant buck that is extremely tough to accomplish. And with my bow and arrow doing it the way I love to do it, man, it's just the ultimate.
Oh, that's that's an incredible story, and and at least at that point you had food then, right? <laughs> oh, I did. Yeah, I had food, dude. It was the wildest deal. Like I um, I uh, so I I quartered up that buck, boned him out, and then stuck him in my pack. And I didn't. My camp was now ten miles back the ridge, so I just figured I'm gonna circle down and around into the truck and um drop him off. And so uh, yeah, packed him up and started going down and. All of a sudden I like I get way down there like I'm getting towards the truck and I come across this little creek and in this little creek there's two ice cold Coors Light that they're sitting in the creek right there. So I'm looking at them I'm like god did somebody forget that like what am I dreaming this or what you know and so I look around and I decide that I can't go steal somebody's Coors Light that's in the creek and about 20 yards later I run into this hunter bro and he's a local hunter bro from Colorado and he's got him and his buddy and so I meet up with those guys and I've got this buck and so they're congratulating me and he's got a deer tag they're also hunting elk and things uh they've got an elk tag as well and then um hunt mule deer and so uh you know i i said well i gotta pack this buck out i gotta go back to the truck and they go man you should stay with us tonight and so we kind of become friends and so they had like this illegal ski shack that they had built way up in the wilderness i don't think they built it i think like a bunch of skiers from Colorado had built it. So they, it was like this little tiny shanty that was like a tree fort and they had sleeping bags in there and a little stove and stuff. And it was way tucked into the woods. Like I said, I don't think they're supposed to build it up there or anything, (laughs) but I stayed with these two bros in this secret camp that night, like sharing campfire stories and, uh, they did have another cold beer at their camp, you know, so I wasn't <laughs> able to celebrate with them or whatever, but made these two buddies from Colorado and ended up staying with them. And, and then, um, I had them hike up with me the next day when I'd get my camp and I said, well, I'll, I'll show you the ridgeline to hunt. There's been bucks on this ridgeline. And so set the guy up with some pretty good Intel and information. So hopefully he could kill a buck and, um, went and, and got my tent the next day. But yeah, it was pretty wild running down to that creek and seeing those Coors lights. <laughs> yeah, That's so funny. So that was their beer then? Yeah, it was their beer. Yeah, <laughs> I think he would have seen me if I would have gone and grabbed yeah. one, which would have been real awkward. Which I don't think I would have been staying in their ski shack if I would have done that. No, probably not. Yeah, it's it's funny when I, I was hunting in Colorado. I think it was in 2018. I came across a cabin in the middle of this wilderness area in this deep, dark timber drainage that was built from all the trees around there. They it was it was crazy and the thing was it had a tin roof and i have no idea how they got this tin in there because there was no trails obviously no motorized vehicles that were i don't know maybe they had to have gotten up in there somewhat illegally which the cabin itself was illegal but it was it was crazy to to i that was the last thing i thought i'd ever find coming you know through the wilderness so that's that's hilarious <laughs> it, was, it was wild they had this place set up and i think what they do is they'd ski in and then they'd stay at this cabin and then they would do backcountry skiing you know in the wilderness during the winter time you know a bunch of group of friends and i think it was like a local's cabin so like definitely illegal and i don't like to see structures in the wilderness but yeah this was pretty cool yeah it was, it was a <laughs> bunch of bros that were staying up there skiing enjoying the woods there wasn't a bunch of trash around or anything so yeah. i don't think they were really hurting anything and uh but yeah it, it was pretty cool i still have some old pictures of that shanty that i slept in i took some some photos before i left um oh that's yeah. so cool oh man that that treat i was so exhausted from the hunt and packing out that buck like i had absolutely pushed my limits so um man i mean i celebrated with them with beer and we had some dinner or whatever 
I remember waking up in like the middle of the night and being so dizzy, like that puke dizzy. It just like my body was like, oh man, you haven't eaten in a day. You haven't drank enough water. You haven't like the last 12 days, you probably lost 15 pounds off your already skinny frame. And now you're going to gonna have steak and a Coors Light. My body was just not having it. I woke up in the middle of the night kind of dizzy. I, I recovered from it or what I felt okay the next day. But um, yeah, oh man, it just, it puts a, it puts a wear and tear on you. Like it, it challenges you to your limits physically and mentally. You're just exhausted by the end of it. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so a, a, a question I have there. So when you were, you were on that hunt and you weren't finding deer in some location, then you end up finding them. What were the differences between the two? Like why, why do you think there wasn't deer in these other basins and high Alpine areas, but in, in the, in the other, do you have an idea? Yeah, I do. Like, um, as I can look back and, and, and analyze the hunt, like that first big wilderness that I went in, a lot of those mountains were rock tops. They weren't grass tops. And so the rock tops don't give for good habitat for mule deer. Like, don't get me wrong. They like cliffs and they like big rocks, but they need these alpine basins. They need the green grass to grow up there. So they need grass tops on these mountains. And so this was a giant wilderness with a bunch of giant peaks, but yet just had rock tops. And so it didn't have the best habitat for muley and, and down, you know, it dropped off from 13,000 and then down around 10, 11,000. It was kind of like um, aspens all over the place. Well, in these aspens, these, you know, there was some definitely some mule deer down in those aspens and things, but they just weren't, you know, they weren't living that high country life or that high country ethos. They were kind of like living in these, these aspen trees and down off there. And I don't actually know if there was any deer in there because I never did see one, but <laughs> I, I would like to believe that there's some mule deer around down in those aspens. And also down in the aspens, the mule deer, they have to compete for the same food source as the elk. And in Colorado has giant elk numbers. And anytime you get elk and deer competing over the same food source, elk always win out. So, you know, I think that's the reason why the, the mule deer numbers were low in there and why I didn't see as many. Now, when I went to the new spot, now that spot, you know, it had 12, 13,000 foot peaks, but it had these lush green basins and like these, these huge snow drifts that build up in the top of that mountain from snow cornices, from wind blowing over, and it just stacks up in these basins. And then there's snow year round and the snow will melt and that snow that melts, you know, it, it, uh, it gives that green grass, that moisture it needs to just grow that neon green. And so like, while it's still super rough and rugged country, and there are like rock tops and cliffs. There's also a lot of grass, alpine basins and shoots and slides, good feed for these mule deer. So yeah, I just happened to stumble upon the place where all the bucks like to summer. And, and it's a strange game when you're hunting high country mule deer, because, um, you know, the, the bucks are grouped up together, which gives you a good chance of killing a big one. You know, you can compare them. They're all living together in these alpine basins, but, um, you know, when they're living up there, you know, sometimes you'll find the right basin and there'll be no no deer in it. Their numbers are condensed, but they they just like certain areas. And so, you know, a lot of times it's it's all or none on hunting muley bucks. You're either seeing zero of them or you're into them and you're into the bachelor herd seeing them. And and this place had great populations and it was just the perfect habitat for bucks. And and actually while I was in this area, I can't draw this area that I drew anymore. So when I first started doing it, there was nobody applying for these bow tags. 
tags. To draw this same tag would take quite a few points. Like I think you could still draw it if you set your mind to it. But while I was in there, I could glass bucks that were going over this ridge into another unit. And this other unit, you know, then I started doing map research when I got home. And it takes a lot of miles to get in there. It's 15 miles to get to the back to that unit. And you have to hike through a unit to get to that one. But I thought, man, that'll be good mule deer hunting. And so uh, I actually hope to go back to that spot this year. I think I've got enough points to go back. And and actually that other unit over there, um, a few years later, I did end up killing a 200-inch muley back there. So really? uh, I did kill that dream muley uh, that, that I've always wanted, this big, deep, four, 28-wide, super heavy um, deer must have weighed 300 or 350 pounds, just a giant buck. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it all came from that first trip and um, learning that next unit and then applying for that other unit. I think I had hunted that other unit two or three times before I harvested that that big deer out of there. So so yeah, it's just um, continuing the the knowledge base and, and learning these areas and these units. And so um, yeah, a lot of times uh, I find new units just you know, by looking at the borders of the unit I am hunting or places I'm driving through, taking notes of what the country looks like. And and after you do it for a while, you're just better at recognizing what's bucky country and what's not, what really looks good for high country mule deer and what doesn't. And, and it's not something like that you can really put your thumb on. It's just almost a feeling of being in so many different mountain ranges and finding bucks in so many different mountain ranges to really recognizing the type of habitat and terrain they like, and then being able to transpose those to the dry mountains the uh, of Nevada, to the Colorado 13 foot peaks, to, you know, the Wyoming and, and those ranges and, and all over really Northern Montana and different places. So um, yeah, man, it's just um, constantly learning. Yeah, it sounds like it. So one one question I have is, so when when do you typically see like the buck starting to shift down to the timber more? You know, with Colorado's season shifting a little bit now, it's what almost a week later than it normally was starting. Do you is is that something of a concern of them starting to move down to the timber, or is that still too early yet? Usually. Oh, it's a huge concern. Yeah, it makes the hunting so much tougher. So yeah, that's the habit of a mule deer is they live in that alpine environment for the summer. But the I think what changes is that food up high starts to burn off. Like all those, the, the snow stops melting in those basins. All of a sudden it's got this intense sun and heat. And, and all of a sudden that green grass that's so lush and so green starts to brown up and starts to lose its nutritional value. And, and what also happens is the bucks um, shed their velvet and they're starting to stage for pre-rut. And so uh, exactly what you're talking about is these deer start to move down into secondary living. And secondary living is now not in these open alpine basins up top and these shoots and slides and places. They just get down off the mountain a thousand feet, a thousand to two thousand feet. And, and they, they still like you know, shoots and slides, but they just tend to be, there's more timber down there and there's more cover and they tend to be in, in smaller openings 
and, and then they they also about that same time of year they're getting their gray coats on so they're losing their summer red coat they're getting their gray winter coat and so they're like allergic to sunshine they don't want the sun to shine on them and so they just they move down to the secondary living and they tighten up their living program they're tougher to find way tougher to kill down there you can't get an exact bed on a buck um you know you just know he went in this timber patch so then you got to set up for him to come out of this timber patch at night and it can still be done and you can be successful in secondary living um and, and it it really depends on the year like some years i won't see him move down to secondary living till september 10th to 15th um some years i see him move start moving september 2nd september 3rd which september 2nd is the colorado opener this year and in that spot you know i've hunted multiple different units in colorado and i've jumped around to zero point units but you know i've seen them i've seen them in the same spots be out of the high country by september 3rd and and then i've also seen them be up there till september 15th it really depends on the year but um, you know, I, I think if you're not finding them in those Alpine basins, the key is to just adjust your game plan. And one of my best bucks I ever killed was in secondary living in Wyoming late in the season. Um, you know, and ended up killing a really good hard horn, like 192, like down in the secondary living. And see what got me on this hunt, this Wyoming hunt, I had scouted this place. And I mean, that I probably saw over a hundred bucks in these Alpen basins. It was just dynamite scouting because Wyoming's three hours from my house. So I'd made multiple scouting trips. So man, I had shooter bucks. I had giant ones with kickers. I had every buck under the sun that I was going to go kill on that unit. But the deal is, is I had a Colorado tag that opened at the same time. So I hunted Colorado first. And then by the time I got to Wyoming, it was September 6th or September 7th, right in there. And I hiked into this spot where I'd scouted all these giant bucks and, and, you know, I could hardly find a buck in these Alpen basins. There was nobody hunting in there, no hunting pressure, but they just moved down to that secondary living. And man, I, I, I was just baffled, but finally I started to move down like these spur ridge lines, and I just lose a thousand feet of elevation and get down there. And all those bucks I had scouted, they were living all down in that secondary, secondary living. And so it took me a while to dial it in. But once I dialed it in, the plays aren't quite as high percentage but if if you're hunting and stalking bucks you know it's just a matter of time before you get one right and so yeah it, it's definitely a concern with those colorado seasons so you definitely want to be there early and you want to hunt those first dates and and really if i was to put my thumb on a date when they start moving to secondary living i'd say september 8th Okay. Well, you actually helped me out personally there because we were looking at the best time to use our vacation and go there. And we were kind of leaning towards missing the opener and waiting almost until like the, the first weekend, which is three, four days into the season, three days into the season. And that would put us kind of in a, a tougher place. So that's, that's really good intel, at least for me personally. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you got something out of there. The other thing you have to remember in Colorado is their uh, muzzleloader season and their bow season overlap. So September 10th, you have muzzleloaders coming in there. So you're going to have more pressure. So yeah, you definitely want to be in there early. 
uh, you want to get the jump on them, you know, even a day or two early to scout in that place uh, is going to be advantageous. Yeah, try to hit them early so they're, you catch them in that Alpine environment. And so that's why those August dates are so killer. Yeah. Like uh, Nevada has August 10th dates. And see, if you were hunting uh, Nevada, like I might tell you, don't even go the first week. Everybody goes that first week and your season's open till September 10th. And so you end up showing up around September 15th, September 17th, and there's nobody there you got the mountains all to yourself and and yeah the the bucks have been shuffled around a little bit but they're all still in that high country environment because they haven't moved to secondary living so different states take different strategies for sure okay that that makes sense what what about um the one other thing that i was thinking about and actually going through mark's e-scouting course for elk was he he talks about beetle kills so like areas that have beetle kill and does that affect at all as far as the deer wanting to stay in those areas that have those luscious grasses that are coming up in the timber versus the alpine or does that not affect the deer as much yeah most of these deer are above timberline so there's just like small little groups of trees and it's usually just stunted trees. Sometimes you'll get into some bigger firs and things or groups of trees, but most of these bucks are living above tree line. And so beetle kill doesn't really come into play for deer so much in that season. But I would say, you know, Mark's right. Like it is a lush grass and those beetle kills and game animals love those, those uh, beetle kill areas. They love burns and things, but I think that would come into play more in the, uh, the the mid season like even secondary living they just come off the tops you may be able to catch them in some of that but really staging for that pre-rut and in rut through that october okay. november season i think that would be money for like burns and beetle kills and uh openings like that because those beetle kills uh areas you know, they still have dead standing trees. And so the deer really feel comfortable in there walking around and they don't feel like they're out in the open. They feel secluded. And then those dead trees let so much light down in that it grows that grass and real good nutritional feed. So like, like those are definitely areas to look and every unit is different where these deer are going to hang out. But most of your high country deer hunting is going to be above timberline. Okay. That, that I did. Yeah. I wasn't sure if they made a shift because of that, or they didn't hang out in the high country as much but that makes it makes a lot of sense and because that just even from scouting some of the units i'm looking at applying to i noticed that there was a lot of beetle kill um just below the high country and that's where i was um some of those those questions came up there so thank you for yeah well and you never know like i say every area is different so if there's yeah. good beetle kills that are sitting right above that high country and they're still sitting at 10 11 000 feet like yeah i mean that that may be an area to go check out you you know, it's like yeah. every every unit, every area is different. So, like, I, I I would still pay attention to your markings on those beetle kill areas and still check them out as long as they're up high enough on that mountain. The, the those deer want to be in the highest green spots. You know, if the peaks sit at thirteen, they want to be at twelve six. You know, yeah. twelve eight, or they just really want to be up high up there. And so, a lot of times the trees up high up there there's there really is no timber it's just like little stunted jack fir trees that are maybe you know six to ten foot tall and maybe there's just one little group of them or one little sliver of trees and then those bucks will disappear in that but a lot more open terrain and then like little tiny patches of timber that they'll go to in bed and so you can kind of see those areas of little groups of trees and things and then glass those hard in the middle of the day and try to you know pick out a bedded buck in them 
Okay. That, well, that makes that makes total sense. Well, I, I guess Brian, I would like to. Do you have anything else that you can think of? I mean, there's we can go a while into this this topic, but as far as for someone that's new going out trying to find mule deer, what would you leave them with as far as uh, uh, a tip or a, a thought or a mindset when it comes to their first high country mule deer hunt? Yeah. So I think it's like having a good battle plan, like you're making and working with, with Mark Livesay, who's great at e-scouting. He, you know, like you say, most of his e-scoutings for elk, but all that transposes to mule deer as well. You know, all his, his tips and tools and tactics that he uses. But as, as far as mule deer, like I'd have a really good game plan. And then, uh, it's just about getting up there and, and, and covering country. I really like master vantage points for mule deer. Like, like sometimes you can see things from the ridge line and you can glass down these alpine shoots and basins and see it real well and, and then sometimes you can't see over the lip or you can't see the whole feature like i remember this one hunt i i did um where i had hunted the ridge line and there was bucks that were living on this hillside but i could only see just slices of the country at a time and so i couldn't keep track of the deer i'd find a good buck and then he'd move out of my 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 visual area where i could see and he'd bed somewhere and then i couldn't find him and i couldn't make it like a calculated stock and so what i actually ended up doing like i i scratched my head up there for two days not being able to get a stock or kill one of these bucks i finally hoffed uh, hiked down off the mountain and lost about 1500 vertical to where I could look at the whole mountain and it laid out to me. And then I could keep track of where the bucks were moving and what they were doing, their exact beds. And even though it took me over an hour to make a stock, I could keep track of them all. I could see them all, you know? And so like, I think in country, it's about finding these master vantage points, how you're going to see country, um, you said you love the glass, which is perfect. You just live and die behind your glass. And these these mule deer are tougher to see than elk. Elk are bleach blonde bodies and they stick out like a sore thumb. And you have to glass for elk, but mule deer are different, man. Mule deer have these gray bodies and they blend in with all the gray rocks. And sometimes you'll have mule deer 300 yards below you and you don't even see them and they're standing up in the wide open. Yeah. Like you really got to be diligent and disciplined and pick this country apart and really search it. And like some mornings I'll wake up and I'll wake up on the master vantage and I just put 20 bucks to bed and I'll wake up in the morning and look at first light and I can't find any of them. You know, it's like, God, did they leave? Are they still here? Are they, you know, and they, maybe they're just bedded and sometimes they're bedded in the wide open and you just can't see them in that stuff. They just, they're the perfect color of a rock, the perfect gray color. So it's really about living and dying behind your glass, behind these master vantage points, mark those vantage points on your map. And then when you're sitting there, you know, give it a good couple hours sit in the mornings or the evenings. And then if you don't find them and, and you're really diligent with your glass and through there, you know, they're not there it's time to move on you move your camp down the ridge line be mobile keep looking for them you know and so just pe keep picking that country apart and then you know as you're hiking ridge lines any new feature that exposes itself you just want to pick it apart with your binos before you move on uh, the game is to keep that element of surprise see those deer before they see you so you can make this calculated play on them 
And then that like, dude, that's where the fun really begins. Then you find the buck you want. And then it's like watching them through the glass and getting this dose of adrenaline of seeing like this monster buck that you'd love to shoot. And, and then it's a matter of just watching and waiting. And in, in high country mule deer, I tend to the majority of them that I kill I'll stock in their beds. And so it's like important to have you know, a blueprint in your head of how are you going to kill a mule deer? And so they're not like elk where you just work into them when they're in their feeding feature or, you know, you, you go get into them or follow them into the timber. Deer are way more calculated and methodical because they're, they're good at catching you and they'll blow out of there. And so like, I'll sit back and I'll watch these deer and, and my, you know, my protocol or the way I go about it is, Usually these bucks will feed in the morning and they'll feed in a spot and they'll usually pick a bed. And then that bed is usually their first bed and they'll, they'll bed in there in mid morning. And usually I'll choose not to stalk them in that bed. I'm just going to sit behind my glass and watch them. Now, the reasons I choose not to stalk them is I want to get the thermal winds better and more consistent. The thermals winds, uh, you know, as the morning goes on 10, 11, 12 o'clock, as it gets hotter, they get more consistent and I can count on them. Also the directional winds come up in the afternoon and they really hide your sound. That wind really messes with the muley's ears and they're called a mule deer because of their giant ears. And if they hear something that's out of place, they're out of there. And so I get a couple things in my favor that way. And so I just sit and I watch and I wait and then uh, they'll, they'll get up from that bed and they'll feed around. And usually they'll make another big move to their secondary bed. Now the secondary bed, this could be anywhere from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock, you know, and, and once they get in the secondary bed, now we're going to get that hot afternoon sun. And like I say, these deer don't like being in the sunshine. And so when they bed in the afternoon bed, like I know they're going to be there for a while. I know they're going to stay put and then I can stalk that spot. And before I ever make a stalk, like I'm taking pictures with my phone of the, the country and my landmarks because it looks like the freaking moon when you get over there. Like it, it, when you're sitting back on a master vantage point, it all makes sense. And I'm going to go by the red log, by the big rock and come over the top and he's going to be 30 yards and I'm going to shoot him right there. And you get over there and you're like, there's a dozen red trees. There's big yeah. rocks everywhere. Like where in the hell am I? It just looks so different. So like really be diligent in taking pictures, zooming in and taking pictures. How am I going to stalk? Which shoot am I going to go down? Mark landmarks on the ridge. And so you plot this whole play, this whole stock and the, whole play of the stock like i love to come in from above maybe not straight above them but the country is going to dictate what you can do and what you can get away with and you're going to use the topography to get in close and uh so a lot of times at the beginning of my stock i'm jogging like the deer can't see me i'm way down the hill they have no idea i'm there and like i don't got to be sneaky at that point what i need to do is cover ground so they're still in that bed by the time i get there so like I'm hustling and I'm moving and then I'm going to get up on top and then like mule deer hunting's all about knowing when to slow down and the closer you get, the slower you go. And um, so then I start executing my stock and where I am and I'm really trying to keep to the shadows of the trees like they can't see you as well in the shadows and, and deer all they see movement far above anything else like your camo pattern or anything like so if they catch you moving they'll snap their heads in your direction and they'll watch that direction for 15 minutes and if they see you move again they're out of there and, and sometimes the gig's up but sometimes if you just hold still they'll look up that direction they'll stare that way for a long time and then they'll just go back to being deer look in the other direction like oh it's nothing you know and yeah uh, i come in from above i come in really slow and then you know guys have different tactics 
uh, if they're in their bed and I have a shot, I'll try to get a shot at them. But what I'm trying to do is, is not force the issue to failure. Like, I don't want to stalk to failure. I don't want to stalk into to 40 yards and I don't have a shot. So I'm going to stalk into 20 yards and then I'm going to stalk into 10 and then I just blow the buck out of there and I never get a chance at him. And so I don't want to stalk until the deer can pick me up. I want to keep that element of surprise. And so I want to get to a place where I can either see that deer in his bed or see the spot where that deer is. And when he gets up and he moves, then I'm in position to capitalize. And so I like say, uh, I let the the mule deer make the last move, you know, it's like, I just get myself into position and then I just play it patient and sure winds can switch and, um, you know, and, and some guys have success doing it different ways, but my game is patience. Patience kills the buck is I never let them know I'm there. I keep the element of surprise. I keep everything in my favor. And then, you know, when he walks out, it's like, um, man, I mean, your heart's just beating out of your chest and he walks out, but then it's about being patient and waiting to draw your bow till he's, you know, down feeding or he's looking away. Cause when they first get up and walk out of their beds or they'll get up and they're really going to look around in all directions. And then they're going to walk to the edge of the tree and they're going to look around in all directions. And a lot of times these mule deer look right up at you and you're 40 yards away and they'll just stare in your direction. And you're like, Oh shit, they see me. (laughs) (laughs) But the move is to just stay, you know, totally still. They look around for danger and then they go to feeding or, you know, they look away from you. And then that's the time to bend your limbs back when he has no idea you're there and you can settle a good shot and so it's being patient waiting for the right angle on that buck the right opportunity but man it is the ultimate it is like um the stocks on mule deer are so thrilling and i mean i've sat you'll sit hours in the sun like uh the the buck i killed in nevada this year uh had to stalk him and i got stuck in the open sage and i was uh, 50 yards away from this buck or whatever i was as close as i could get that the country would allow and um i sat there with my buddy dan in the nevada heat it had to be 85 90 degrees and we sat there in the sunshine for two hours him videoing me and then me getting ready to shoot and i could see the buck down there and every time he turned his horns i think he's gonna stand you know i start to get ready like i'm gonna draw you know and and finally he did he stood and he gave me a broadside and able to lace that buck but it was two hours in the sunshine i've had arrow uh, stocks that last for four hours there like you just got to be patient and it just it kills me it's so tough to be patient but uh like i i believe in what i preach and i believe that patience kills the buck and that's how I approach it. So I never throw rocks. I never get them out of their bed. I never force the action. I always wait for them to make the last move, but that's kind of, that's my approach and yeah. you'll build your own approach for them through doing it, you know, like what works for you. But, but that seems to be, you know, that seems to be what works for me in the kiss of death for at, at least a handful of big muleys. That's awesome. And, and I, I don't, I don't have the experience from the standpoint of stalking uh, a mule deer getting that close. But one thing I can relate to is when you're talking about looking at a, a piece of country and saying, Oh, I'll just go over to that rock and I'll come down from that way. I wasn't, when I was in Colorado this one time, my brother had a muzzleloader mule deer tag while I had a, a archery elk tag and he spotted some bucks and they went into this timber patch and I said, I'll come on the, the stock with you. I, w- I would just was going to a certain point and then he was going to go the rest of the way. Well, once we got over there, we couldn't remember what patch of trees they were in. We, 
it was so difficult and then never ended up even finding the buck, whether we blew it out or what, or we were just in a completely wrong spot. It was so difficult to be able to tell. And that was a huge learning experience, uh, for us was, was seeing that, you know, cause they, when they were, you know, feeding that, that, that nice, you know, grassy, it was, it was in what, what I would consider high country, but it wasn't like those giant Alpine basins where there was some Alpine, but then it went in the dark timber pretty fast. And yeah, it was, it was a huge, huge learning experience. And then actually met another hunter who had in one of those early season rifle tags who shot the buck and he was packing it off the mountain like a day or two later and got to see it up close. Not, not the way we were hoping for, but uh, we, got, <laughs> we got to see it. So good buck. Yeah. Bet, huh? Yeah. Yeah. He was probably, I bet he was over 180 inches. Oh. Uh, it, was, it was an incredible incredible deer and and he had a deep fork on those two and on the other side it was on his three so it was just it was just a really cool looking deer and um yeah it, it was it was pretty pretty cool and actually the guy ended up reaching out to me later um like a couple years later found my podcast and recognized my face on it and uh and he was from somewhere out west so that was it was kind of cool Oh, it's a small world. Yeah. Isn't it? When you run into people that know the podcast or know you. Yeah. yeah that's wild. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. And it, and it, you know, that, uh, that may have been the first, but it won't be the last. Like, yeah. gosh, it's, just a, it's an empty feeling to get over on the other side where you know there's a giant buck and you can't make sense of it or you come down the wrong chute or the, you know, I was hunting bucks in Wyoming and secondary living a couple of years ago. And I, uh, yeah. And I, I, I actually ended up, uh, eating my tag. I, I got a bunch of stocks and I saw a bunch of good bucks and my buddy Dan killed his best buck to date, like just this giant back fork buck. And he kept with me and man, we, we gave it everything we had. We hunted right up to the rifle opener and I just couldn't quite seize the deal. But, uh, I, I had made a, a mistake, a critical error of coming down the wrong shoot or the wrong timber. They get in that secondary living and it gets even tougher yet. But, um, yeah, it, it won't be the last time, but uh, if you're diligent and disciplined and you take all those pictures and make that plan and draw on your phone and draw on your map, then at least when you're over there and you're lost, you can zoom in and kind of figure out where you're at and make sense of it again. You know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it's... um. For spot and stalking, it's definitely one of the one of the challenges that that you'll face. But it's just good knowing that going into it, and like yeah. I've learned that lesson enough now to where you know I I just pay attention to all those landmarks and those features. Like I I don't go on autopilot and just take off for the stock. Like I am really taking notes of where that buck is at uh, because I've messed it up so many times in the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm hopefully gonna take some of this information and your lessons learned and. Uh, hopefully be able to reduce the learning curve a little bit. You know, like you said, you're going to make mistakes, but anything I can do to, to try to limit those mistakes, um, that's what I'm looking to do. <laughs> well, I think that's what, what this podcast and this information day and age does is that, 
you know, you you can shorten the learning curve where you don't have to make the the stupid mistake 10 times over. Like you can you can hear it and recognize that that's going to be a challenge. And then when you're in that situation, handle it the right way and shorten your learning curve. And instead of messing it up 10 times over, you know, you mess it up once and learn your lesson and then um, do your due diligence when you're planning your stock. So yeah, man, I think it's one of the beautiful things about podcasts and the information that's out there is you can really learn from other people's experience and um, get better faster. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, Brian, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to me about this. And, and it was everything that I hoped and more because like, like I told you when, when I sent you the email, I sent you a couple bullet points of things I wanted to hit. I said, but it's pretty, I, I knew I didn't really need to lay it out very detailed because uh, I knew we'd get into some stories and, and just be able to pull a lot from that. I think anybody that's listening can listen to your that story from Colorado or, or Wyoming and be able to pull some information. So again, thank you for for agreeing to do this. Oh, dude, my pleasure. It's so good to finally connect with you in person. So yeah, I got to get you on the Eastman's Elevated uh, podcast as well. So do your Colorado high country mule deer hunt and um, definitely have you on after that hunt or we do have some time leading up to it. But yeah, I'd love yeah. to have you on my podcast as well. So yeah, it's just, uh, it's great to connect with like-minded individuals. And and um, yeah, you asked me about, about mule deer and um you know, uh, <laughs> I, I get, I get pretty excited. Like, uh, I, I just love it so much. And I, I, um, I love talking about it. I love doing it. And so, uh, yeah, man, it's just a pleasure to come on and, and, uh, talk about my love. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Brian, where can everyone find your podcast and every, and, uh, videos and everything else that you're putting out? Yeah, so um, Eastman's Elevated is the podcast, and you can check it out wherever you get podcasts. And then um, the the films are going to be uh, – you can search Eastman's Hunting TV on YouTube. You can find them there. There's a handful of them on there. And then we've released a lot of them to the Outdoor Channel, Eastman's Hunting TV on the Outdoor Channel. And I think they have – like a couple years or a shelf life on the outdoor channel. And then Eastman's will end up releasing them to their YouTube. And then I've got some good ones coming up. We talked about that Nevada hunt where Dan was filming behind me. Uh, that's that's going to be an awesome film. I can't wait for that one to come out. So that'll be uh, showing up here sometime this year. And yeah, I have a, a, a lot of fun doing it and trying to capture those things and tell the story. Like filming's, you know, you talked about writing in the beginning of the podcast. And that's like, it's such a fun uh, such a fun platform because you get to think of your word choice and structure this article and read through it and change it. And, and you sound really intelligent, or at least I do, because I can read through it and I can proofread it where, you know, podcast is really raw. Like it's, um, yeah. you say what's on your mind or you say what you're thinking. And sometimes you trip over your words or sometimes you even lose the point you're going down or the point you're making, or, you know, it's just a different platform that's taken, you know, taken a while to get good at each one of them and filming's that way too. Like I always thought, I did the coolest adventures and if I can just film them, like it'll, it'll, you know, it, it's going to be the, the most awesome film you could ever make. And then I get home and I see my footage and put it together. And it's like, Jesus, that doesn't even do justice <laughs> to what I did up there. So yeah. it's also taken a while at the film thing, but I think I filmed, 
I don't know, probably 15 or 20 hunts now. And um, through that time, I get better at knowing which shots tell the story. Uh, when you don't want to turn the camera on is when you should turn it on. Like I have this film out right now that I filmed this year called Open Country Bucks. And um, man, I, I uh, five days in or six days in, right at the end of my hunt, I found a double sticker buck and he bedded over these cliffs and I had my buddy Dan filming for me and I came over the top. He was five yards over the top, but I could see his antlers spinning and he was nervous so i didn't try to come over and shoot him i was just waiting and then he spooks out and i make my way over the cliff and he's standing there at under 20 yards and i draw back and i find my peep and right as i'm right as i find my peep and my anchor that buck spins to roll out of there and i fly my pin on him and i punch my shot off and i shoot right over top of him right on film double sticker buck probably 190 inch deer uh miss him clean and dude you talk about heartbroken like i says just the buck that i just you know it's like that colorado story I tell you, yeah. you know like like missing is the worst especially when you prepare all year and i made a stupid mistake i forced my shot because that buck was rolling and and i know better but the the one thing i did is i turned on the camera right after i missed that buck and i just i i laid my heart out on the camera just like here's what happened and you know there's some jokes in there about selling my bow and how i didn't want to pack them out because the stickers would get caught on the brush yeah. and, you know, <laughs> i'm like with dan joking around but you can just tell i'm just heartbroken but I, I picked myself up. That was our last day. We had to go home. And then I came back solo and I did another few day hunt. And my, my bike actually broke, broke down. Like I had a dirt bike on this hunt and the dirt bike would get me to the trailhead to where then I could hike with my backpack and my dirt bike broke down like 15 miles from my truck. I had to hike back one day, uh, find, able to get my truck to the dirt bike loaded up. And it was like, well, I can give up and go home or I can stick on my backpack and I can go for it and ended up sending it up into the mountains and then ended up arrowing a really good buck with a couple double stickers on him or whatever on film and so now i'm just getting to the point where i feel like the film does justice to the backcountry hunting uh, yeah. telling the story and things and and my whole point to that was is that when you don't feel like turning on the camera whether it's adverse weather or you miss a buck or you make a mistake or something ha like that's the time to turn on the camera and capture it like this this raw unedited moment you know so yeah it's, it's really cool to look back on and and it's especially really cool since i found redemption and arrowed a buck so it's not as painful missing that that great yeah. big double sticker buck but uh <laughs> it was an awesome hunt man just some awesome adventures to have out west Oh yeah, and 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 the one thing I will say about that, I started filming uh, hunts recently, and I always was kind of against it. I didn't, not against it from the standpoint I didn't like it. I just didn't like the idea of doing it and screwing up my hunt and everything. And I was really, especially with whitetails, and I did it this year, and it was it was tougher. It required a lot more effort. All this stuff, you have more movement in the tree, and you got all these things going on. And and but after seeing the final product, like it's it's pretty cool. And I'm I'm I am taking uh, my camera guy Justin with me to Colorado this year to film that whole adventure. So I'm I'm super excited. Uh, about it and always nervous too but for some reason he seems to be my lucky charm that uh, whenever I bring him along I end up 
end up doing okay. So I'm I'm hoping that that this continues. <laughs> Dude, how cool! Well, and yeah. to have a buddy on the hunt, and then you know he's focused on filming. You're focused on hunting. Yeah, it's just awesome. It takes it takes a commitment, doesn't it? You decide you're going to film, like you can't waver at all. And and that was me too, as I didn't want it to take away from the hunt and from the experience. And I've gotten to a place now where I'm doing these hunts with buddies, and we kind of share camera time, or you know, a cameraman that I really get along with that I trust or something of that nature but uh it almost adds to the experience capturing it but i still you know i choose two or three hunts to film and then you know i'm almost like a little frustrated after that like a little ready to get some you know just to stock something on my own and get a good arrow in something so then uh, i always plan for quite a few hunts that i don't film or don't capture yeah and um those are always fun and good for the soul as well so it's a mix and match for me but it is fun it's um it's a commitment, but it's so fun when you actually capture one and then can show, you know, my family that doesn't come with me, you know, my girls, uh, I can show them the hunt, my raw emotions and how it all went down and share it with my family and friends and have them, you know, right there along with me. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fulfilling endeavor that uh, I've really grown to, to love and enjoy. Awesome. Well, I'm going to have to check out that, that open country one, tonight i've watched a bunch of your videos on on eastman's hunting tv there on youtube but i haven't seen that one yet so i'm gonna have to check it out and i urge anyone listening to go check out uh all of your hunts on there and and definitely the podcast as well like i said that's one of the ones that that i've learned a ton from and uh and i, I also just for your feedback i i enjoy the solo ones you do too even without the gas i i feel like um i i don't know about you but when i record solo ones i don't i don't really enjoy it that much from the standpoint i feel like i always sound dumb or rambling but uh i, I know for me listening to yours i i enjoy those ones a lot Oh, thanks so much, man. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. So great to get feedback. Yeah, those are kind of like my therapy sessions where I just hit record and kind of have a rough game plan and whatever comes out, comes out. But yeah, I'm glad guys like them. So thanks, man. I really appreciate the kind words and appreciate you having me on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.